0: Hello and welcome. I am Jyotishman. I am the host of India and Global Left, moderating this conversation between Freddie and Paul as part of Plebiti's Free Speech and Left Conference. We are joined today by independent journalists Paul Jay and Freddie Dubois for a conversation on independent media, censorship, and hate speech laws. Paul Jay is an independent journalist and documentary filmmaker. He is the founder, editor-in-chief and host of TheAnalysis.News, a site of political commentary and interviews. He is currently working on a documentary with Daniel Ellsberg titled How to Stop a Nuclear War, which is based on Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine. Freddie Dubois is an independent journalist based in Brooklyn, New York. He is the author of The Cult of Smart, How Our broken education system perpetuate social injustice and his newest book is how elites ate the social justice movement freddy is a self-styled old school marxist and writes regularly on his substack about politics marxism education police reform and other topics welcome Freddie and paul um i wanted to start with you Freddie, on uh, hate speech and hate speech laws um I read your article where you have argued that hate speech laws don't work so why don't we start with your opening statement on then on that and then Paul uh, responding to
1: that sure I mean I think the first thing to say is always to point out that there is no such thing as a hate speech exemption to the first amendment in the United States Uh, one of my my frustrations is that very often when liberals and leftists are talking about uh the concept of hate speech they often talk as though there is such a thing as like a already existing statute of hate speech, what it is uh, legally in the United States. There is no such uh, category as hate speech in the United States. You can say this is hate speech in a sense that you think is um, descriptively true, but there is not a legal category of hate speech. And I also think that um, it's almost entirely pointless to talk about the the creation of one Uh, in order for there to be a hate speech um, provision for the United States. You would have to make an amendment to the Constitution to to create that um uh exception uh, to the first amendment and among other things a a, a uh, amendment to the constitution requires three quarters of the state legislatures of the united states to go along with something which is just totally fanciful under current political conditions i think the republicans would rightfully feel uh that any kind of a hate speech uh code um written into the united states cons- constitution would be used primarily as a cudgel against them I mean, I guess you can sort of theoretically define an idea of like a, you know, partisanly neutral, ideologically neutral hate speech um, code. But in practice, it would almost certainly be used more against conservatives than against liberals and the state legislatures of Republican countries, uh, Republican states, excuse me, are not going to get on board with that. Um, I think the hate speech doesn't, hate speech laws don't work because I think we have very good evidence that they don't. Uh, The most obvious examples are countries like Germany and France. Germany and France both have aggressive anti hate speech and anti far right extremism statutes on their books. They both ban explicit Nazism. Uh, (coughs) Nazi parties are not allowed, Nazi uh, iconography are banned in both of those countries. Um, They both have um, (coughs) sort of robust uh in, implementation of various laws in place to try to stop the spread of uh, far-right uh parties and they also have a huge far-right problem right both of these countries that have really actively attempted to stamp down uh, uh neo-nazi uh, propaganda and, and uh neo-nazi parties have a significant neo-nazi problem and what you see in both cases um which particularly in germany it happens over and over again is that a party will rise, a far-right party will rise. Um, it will have a lot of iconography that is sort of new, but is in the um, the vein that we've seen from fascist parties, far-right parties in the past. Um, and they will uh, uh, eventually uh, be criminalized by uh, the German government. Department of Interior, I think, is usually who's responsible for those sort of things. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, once that happens, they formally disband, Maybe some a few of their leaders will be uh, arrested, um, but then they will simply scatter, and then they'll reform and reconstitute in new parties. You can ban the party. You can ban the particular expression of these ideas in individual parties and their specific slogans and the names of the parties. But the ideas that underlie them right, are popular with a certain subset of the population. And so they will continue to be expressed in some way in the political process. And in both Germany and in France, we've seen the increasing uh uh salience of these parties in the electoral politics um the
0: city sorry so can we just stay here and let Paul respond and then then we can come back to you yeah sure uh well
2: this is not my preoccupation uh but I don't believe in some absolutist uh free speech Uh, and there are certain forms of hate speech laws which I think can work Uh, I'm I'm living in Canada right now we have a hate speech law here and as far as I understand it the experience with it has not been so bad it's it's essentially uh, aimed at overt forms of racism uh, and fascism I mean overt and I, I i personally have no problem with that now whether you could have a law with like that in the united states constitutionally is a whole nother matter but if we're talking about is this something i would be for i am for it uh, and uh, i am not for for example uh, which i do understand might be the case in germany that there should be a law against any interpretation of history i don't think ipso facto uh you know by saying there wasn't a Holocaust uh that's automatically hate speech uh, although maybe it is I don't think any court should be involved at this time in deciding how history is discussed uh but hate speech whose real intent is to mobilize people against a specific race group ethnicity I have no problem banning that uh and and as I say I think the Canadian experience on that is is not so bad uh but I either now or a little later in the conversation I think we really have to broaden this conversation out uh because this isn't about a particular hate speech or censoring hate speech without looking at the context and you know I'll get into it more later but the, the, there is a war going on throughout this world and the the one thing that's really banned from mainstream media is to discuss the nature of this war and you can't even talk about this and uh, without getting kicked off and never invited back and it's you can't say the most obvious thing which is we live in a class society and throughout the world there is a class war going on every single day now sometimes this breaks out into state to state war uh, the aggressive uh, invasion by russia and ukraine uh, the american backing the saudi war in yemen uh, you can go on but i lived in baltimore uh, for you know 8 years 9 years and there is a class war against black workers every single day and even the department of justice uh, under the obama administration investigated the baltimore police force and concluded that every single day in Baltimore, people's constitutional rights are being violated. And why? So that there can be a cheap labor force available for the institutions and corporations in Baltimore. So in the context of this kind of war, let's then talk about censorship, hate speech. But on the face of it, in a very narrow interpretation meaning very overt racism very overt fascism that could lead to mobilizing people sure I don't have a problem with that let's there's a reason why so much money is invested in propaganda it's because it works
0: Freddie would you like to respond to Paul's point that it does work um, and he makes the point that in Canada, it seems to be working at this point.
1: Sure. I mean, I think mean, that Canada is distinct from the United States in all manner of ways, uh, <clears throat> for, you know, a variety of historical and cultural reasons. I just don't believe that, of course, we're in a class war. I think the first thing I would say in response to that is one of the things that really, uh, uh disappoints me about the contemporary left is that the definition of who the biggest enemy is has changed within my lifetime. Uh, I understand the the real enemy, the person who is, does the most damage, is a guy who puts on a two thousand dollars suit and goes up to a tall building on Wall Street, uh, and as an investment banker, ruins the lives of millions of ordinary Americans every day. But in my own lifetime, as a someone who's been an, an activist in left circles for his entire adult life, you know the focus has fallen farther and farther from that person, that you know immensely wealthy tycoon on Wall Street. And it is now more and more, you know, a proud boy or some other, you know, part of the lumpen fascist movement in this in the United States who shows up at a protest and throws some rocks and, and punches some people who has no actual power to affect anything in the world, right? I mean, to me, the way to win the class war is to understand that the people who are the greatest danger to the working class, to the environment, to people of color, to uh, LGBTQ people, etc., ultimately are the people who hold respectable positions of power within the established economy. It's not the fringy John Birch society types. I think those people are despicable, but I don't think that they actually control the sort of bulk of the destructive power in the United States. And I would also say like, look, look at an issue like acceptance of interracial marriage. Nowadays in polling, uh even republicans poll north of 90 percent of people approve of interracial marriage but as recently as the early 1990s a majority of republicans were consistently uh, saying that interracial uh, marriage was immoral how did we achieve victory in moving that needle over time we didn't ban the idea that interracial marriage is wrong we didn't we didn't carve out an exception in in the constitution say you can't argue this Rather, the force of the idea, the the fact that we were morally correct, right the fact that people lived lives that demonstrated that these marriages were not destructive, the fact that we demonstrated our values in a lived sense created a natural, organic rejection of the idea that interracial marriage uh, is bad. And I think that that's just always going to be, in the long term, a more permanent and durable way to achieve change than by trying to ban things
2: yeah well I don't I don't think I disagree with a word of that um and I'm any any attempt that goes beyond what I was saying to ban overt racist and fascist language that is meant to incite people to attack uh, in a racist and fascist way anything else I I'm not a, I'm not for anything and of course you have to win by persuasion and in fact that's why is there such a Trumpist movement why did 75 million people vote for Donald Trump Mm. it's not because the majority of them are racist and fascist the majority of them are not by any means Uh, the majority of them are just fed up Mm. I I once I, I interviewed a guy before in the lead up to the first Trump election where he won in a diner outside Baltimore and i said we were asked him uh, about how he felt about trump and he said well he's a liar uh he's a scumbag i i don't trust him and i'm going to vote for him what's that tell you about what i think about the other guys the whole system is toxic and it's toxic for what was you just said you know it, it is how stuff is owned it's the concentration of ownership um and and the concentration of ownership particularly in the financial sector which has become so parasitic that far more money is is in this casino capitalism than investing in anything productive people are suffering from that and the corporate democrats and and the the liberal face of this system has simply written off those 75 million people that voted for trump they don't give a damn and 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 they till the soil for such uh, crazy shit to be believed. So if you want to deal with the crazy shit, no, you don't ban the crazy ideas. You don't ban people that believe in this theory or crazy theory. What you do is invest in a public education system right across the country. And you actually pay teachers properly. And you train teachers to actually know history. I mean, you you look at some of the the uh papers kids are writing in school about the second world war they absolutely haven't got a clue who were the nazis who were the soviets who were the Amer- and they're getting a's why because the teachers don't know any better than the kids do i mean if you really want to deal with the uh, descent of so much of the population into a kind of uh i don't know what else to call it a kind of ignorance that makes the people susceptible for being recruited into th- theocratic fascist movement, it's it's the complete collapse of a decent public education system outside of major cities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think casino capitalism, I think, is just the right term. And I think that one of the things uh, that I think that um, we could all do a, a better job of sort of explaining to everyday people is um, the degree to which financialization is not just Found in the financial industry anymore. So, one of the things that emerged from the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, and well, a lot of people didn't know, but became apparent. So, for example, General Motors was making most of its money. The majority of its profit was not coming from selling cars, it was coming from it had created a financial bank that was attached to it and was making bets on the economy. And the same thing was true of the major airlines, the same thing was true of General Electric. Um, and one of the things that happens when you have this financial sector that is promising people such incredible returns, you say, well, look, you can go and you can build a factory and you might make 5% a year, or you can invest with me and you can make 20% a year, right? When you have that kind of a margin, because you're making these extremely risky bets, like they were making with mortgages and mortgage-backed securities and derivatives and all that stuff, um, ordinary investment can't compete right if I just have an an old school factory in which I'm building widgets and I can employ people and I can send these things out then that looks like a much less attractive uh investment opportunity to investors and so one of the things that happens is that financialization spreads further and further across the country because in order to sort of compete with the interest rates that some of these banks are are dangling in front of people uh institutions that are not fundamentally financial have to use those shenanigans too which of course is fine until inevitably right whatever cracks are in that financial model happen break and we have explosions like we had in 2008 and
0: 2009 yeah i i just wanted to quickly add that this uh, the implication goes beyond the country and particularly its impact uh the impact of finance capital on the global south has been very very extreme i mean as we speak we are seeing countries after countries pakistan sri lanka facing the balance of payment crisis and one of the roots of this was this liquidity was following the global financial crisis in the global north that went into these bond markets through the bond markets uh, into these countries of the global south and the moment interest rates are hiked in the global north capitals just switched back leaving the country's money into depreciation, you know, trades falls, balance of payment uh, goes into a sort of complete toss. And then IMF goes in and imposes the austerity and eventually the burden is transferred into the working people. Um, uh, sorry for just this addition, since uh, I come from the global South, I thought there was this great moment. Uh, I want to um, quickly um, sh- switch from this discussion, but, if we can just quickly put this thing away since paul mentioned about um school education and i'm taking university as part of this and maybe my question is particularly relevant to university uh, what are your thoughts about the rise or this conflict uh, around free speech in university particularly with regards to um what we generally understand as cancel culture or issues of diversity, equity and inclusion? Do do you see a particular threat in that? Or is it blown out of proportion by the right wing as a sort of weaponization?
2: Well, I, I think the answer is both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it does get blown out of proportion by the far right. And I also think it gets exaggerated by sections of the left. Uh, the The we are facing an existential threat. Uh, the climate crisis and the risk of nuclear war uh, are have never been more threatening. Uh, so you cannot judge an issue without starting there. So if a particular professor or a particular thing is being said, um, it doesn't mean, uh, it, it doesn't offend someone's identity, it doesn't restrict some rights, uh, and and I'm not saying people should lay down in the face of it but is it the primary issue and 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 if we need to build a unity of the people to force real policy real action on climate and real policy to reduce the risk of nuclear war then everything else has to be judged in the context of that you know you got to pick your battles and it, it serves the interests of the oligarchy to you know to use Bernie's words or whatever um you know to keep people fighting over these other issues you know right now the the abortion issue is actually after years of hurting the Democrats because it it pushed so many votes towards the Republicans now all of a sudden it's galvanizing some vote that might help the Democrats and 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 it's you know clearly a legitimate fight for women to control their reproductive rights but there are a lot of serious people honest people ordinary people who are religious and and with with in good faith not in bad faith think abortion is against their their principles i don't think women should have to give give up their rights because of that on the other hand there should be enormous effort including knocking on doors in all the areas where people vote for trump to say look okay we're going to disagree on this but we're faced with an existential crisis Our human civilization could end so how about you we agree at least to reduce the risk of nuclear war you know if you don't get the climate science let me tell you what i know about it and you know we all know there's lots of us aren't going to agree on some of these other issues like abortion or or or, or even you know gay marriage okay we won't agree but in the context of what we're facing the threat we're facing you know if there was like a meteor about to hit the earth are are you, you want to be arguing about abortion well that's the kind of moment we're in so and the problem is the the corporate Democrats which rep which essentially are the political face or much of the financial sector um they don't want effective policy to deal with climate Because what is effective policy? It's a kind of central planning. You actually have to plan a green economy and it can't be done by anywhere other than government. It's clear the market can't do it. And as much as even they know, like you listen to Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, he's fully aware of the facts of how dangerous the climate crisis is. But they don't want a kind of government planning. Now, it's not they're against central planning they don't mind when the fed bails out banks what is that but central planning the bloody Pentagon is central planning there's lots of central planning but it's central planning done by a government and politicians very beholden to the financial sector but they don't want to open the door to a transformation to a green economy that will require pulling back on some of the profit centers they have in fossil fuel companies and such even though they know human civilization is threatened by it
1: yeah I would also say that my response is like it's both at the same time look I've written a lot about civil liberties on campus I do fundamentally think that conservative students and considered for conservative professors should have have the right to hold and express the opinions that they do I also think that um it's very fraught for the American University system if it really does become entirely one side of the political spectrum because that means that it's much less defensible I mean one of the things there's been this terrible defunding of American public education higher education in the last 20 or so years and one of the things that Republican state legislatures always do is they say one of the reasons we're cutting funding is because these are just leftist indoctrination camps anyway, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that there's, of course, in a certain sense, these are tempests in the teapot, but I think it's worth asking, um, why have young people today become so um, habituated to expressing their problems in a way that is very Sort of parochial, so very like my campus is the world, and I need to clean up my world, and I appeal to the dean, and he's the heart, the highest authority there is, and my problems are all about offense, and you know, I'm my 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 desires are to limit people's language. I think you have to look at that and say that these are young people who have grown up with a sense of disenfranchisement, right? That, in other words, part of the reason why so many young people spend so much time with the language policing and with freaking out about who gets cast cast in what movie and 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 having social media freakouts um, is because they've grown up into a political system in which they don't believe they have representation right in other words they look at the political system in which they're embedded and they don't see themselves as having a voice as having an opportunity to uh, to really influence things i mean one of the things that i've found myself is There's a really interesting combination and kind of dark combination uh, among a lot of young people of um, great idealism, but also nihilism, right? In the sense that they have very developed political instincts and they have a strong sense of right and wrong, but they don't believe that they can actually create change, right? They don't think that anything's going to get better, Um, and so I think that part of the reason why you see these perpetual blow ups on college campuses is because it's one of the only places where people of that age feel that they have any power, right? Like they they don't think that they can get a political system that actually represents their interests. They don't think the economic deal is going to get better for them. They're looking at a world where healthcare, education and housing just keep getting more and more prohibitively expensive. Most of these kids don't believe they'll ever be able to own their own home, and they're probably right, right? And so they they see this this very pessimistic outlook on the world and they say, well, look, here at the place where I spend $30,000 a year in tuition checks, and where we can raise our voice and yell at our administrators who can give us what we want. Here we're going to exercise our power, right? Like it's it's a, it's a, the expression of this is the only place I feel enfranchised the only place I feel empowered so I'm going to become more and more controlling of that space well I'm not sure that's so bad
2: where else they going to fight except in the school where they spend most of their time what what I'm more concerned about is the the way universities suppress discussion indirectly by who they hire Uh, for example the Israel-Palestine question I mean how many professors have either lost their jobs or are scared about their jobs if they talk about what's really going on in terms of the apartheid state in Israel against the Palestinians Mm -hmm. um the institutional power is far stronger than anything the left is capable of doing that said I think it's important don't divide the students on secondary issues I don't mind closing down a member of the nazi party if they've been invited to speak go there scream at them disrupt it's fine with me Uh, i think suppression of overt nazism again there's a difference between conservative opinion right-wing positions and overt nazism but the main thing the left should do is promote as much open discussion and debate if you believe facts are on your side you don't fear discussion and debate and i wish i hope the left one gets over so much sectarianism how much left just winds up spending its time attacking other portions of the left and don't divide the student body over secondary questions there's a lot there's some polling recently even amongst republicans that consider themselves uh, seriously conservative republicans it was something close to 20 percent of them thought climate is a legitimate threat the climate crisis 10 percent of those Republicans thought it was at the amongst their top three concerns the climate crisis so how about trying to win those people over and talk about climate and try to subdue the fights on on some of the questions you know you're going to disagree upon again the meteor is about to hit the earth you know that movie don't look up well we're in that kind of moment we better be smart and tactical to try to build as much unity I, i'm not naive there's a section of the population that you know because of indoctrination however the they belief system there's a lot of money being invested in getting people to believe that trump is a vehicle of god and the, the christian theocracy i think is a serious it's not the proud boys that are a problem there's a it's amongst the elites that are using their money to mobilize Christian nationalism amongst the people it's a very serious threat Uh, um, Mikey Weinstein from the religious military religious Freedom Foundation who do a lot of work on pushing back against Christian theocracy in the military they think as much as 30 percent of the military have been recruited now actively into Christian theocratic forms. Um, the real story of January 6 uh, on Capitol Hill was not what happened on January 6th. It was the lead up to January 6th where 10 former secretaries of defense, the uh, former Supreme Commander of NATO, and an editorial in the Financial Times, all on January 4th, essentially said a coup was in progress and this is by the way another form of censorship because you can't say this at all in mainstream TV they don't want to acknowledge there was a coup in progress on January 4th they want to just focus on Proud Boys on January 6th which is the more irrelevant irrelevant part of what happened but the, as I said earlier propaganda works and there's a lot of money invested in mainstream media online media social media uh, to recruit and, and persuade people but how do we deal with it you can't i mean you can even if you advocated banning it it's nonsense you have no power to do so we need to talk to people and persuade people uh, and so uh, as far as free speech on campus goes it, it's you know we sh- if facts are on our side are meaning the left and i think they are let's rely on them
0: Freddie, you want to respond very briefly before i
1: shift the conversation no, I mean I think that I think that that's all that's all said. I I would just um I would I think that they're again like as 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 sort of little sympathy as I have for these Republican voters that we're talking about, again, I think that what what they share with these very liberal uh, college students again is like a sense of disenfranchisement which is part of which is I mean in one sense is crazy right because no one is more overrepresented in our political system than you know the average white male Republican but at the same time if you look at things like QAnon or the rest of these wild conspiracy theories right like I think part of what unites all of them is a sense that the system is broken down change is impossible within the system and so like QAnon is like this like apocalyptic sort of conspiracy right it's you will come back and there will be a great cleansing and there will be fire and blood in the streets, et cetera, And that sort of stuff often comes from a sense of sort of like among ordinary people. That the system is rigged, which it is, and that change isn't really possible. And so that prompts people into these extremes within their own little affinity groups, because if you don't think that you can work within the system to create change, you're always going to sort of gravitate towards just getting more and more intense within your own little niche and the
2: oh, uh, the only thing I would su- add to that or suggest to people on campuses and such you know Daniel Ellsberg was a, a, a militant you know the, who released the Pentagon Papers I'm doing a film with him now on his book Doomsday Machine he, he was a nuclear war planner I interview Larry Wilkerson a lot who used to be Colin Powell's Chief of Staff they, they were militant militant Cold Warriors they really believed uh the Soviet Union was uh, you know could could try to have a first strike against the United States they thought it uh, they was trying to take over the world they believed all that stuff and then they came to realize it was bullshit. so even you know people that believe in the QAnon stuff and I agree with what was just said it's it's out of desperation you, you pick up you believe in this stuff your own life doesn't really validate it validate it so if you're going to talk to people I mean, listen some people are nuts they're just they've been driven mad by a culture that's essentially irrational and maybe you can't talk but most people who voted for trump are not completely nuts and are not QAnon. Um, and even if they are just set that stuff aside just say listen do you think there's a climate threat do you think climate crisis is real so argue on that forget the rest of the stuff most of the ordinary people don't have an economic interest in these crazy shit, but there's a gang of billionaires who do have an economic interest in people believing this stuff so what 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 Fred said earlier yeah let's get the attention back on these guys in the $2,000 suits including the ones that are working around Trump that are behind Trump And, and let's try to have as much unity amongst people as we can
0: a lot of uh, stuff about beliefs is due to alienation. Uh, if you read military uh, or war histories, you very quickly realize how easily people understand the ravages of war just by being involved, which they, they generally may not have understood. And Thinking about this alienation this is a good segue into my next discussion which is the internet this is the sort of uh, our great moment of transformation the new market uh, sort of the way carl polanyi would say the great transformation of the 20th century this is our great moment perhaps in the last uh, last 20 years um so i wanted to start with you paul about uh, the issue of censorship in the digital market and there are issues about uh, arbitrary usage of uh, algorithm there are issues about involvement of government and there are issues about um, corporations in the digital market using our data to manipulate uh, us or even turn ourselves into commodities so can you if you can just tell your story very briefly but also respond to this sort of the moment we are living in and the issue of censorship that comes with the internet space. I'll try to do it quickly. Uh, yeah, I, I run having a website
2: called the And I did this story about January 6, uh, on a YouTube, we have a YouTube channel, uh, where I pointed out that the real issue was the, well, the events that led up to January 6, not January 6, uh, again, about all the various mainstream sources that were talking about an attempted coup essentially uh, Christian nationalism within the military and uh and in in the video I also pointed out that the uh, corporate America had decided that had enough of Trump and wanted a peaceful transition. One, they don't so fear a Biden presidency. They know in the final analysis that there may be some legislation they don't like, but it's not gonna challenge their essential power. But something I pointed out in the video uh, that was reported in mainstream media and then disappeared, the, the, the doors of Capitol Hill were breached at 2.10 in the afternoon. At 3.10 in the afternoon, the Association of American Manufacturers called for Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Trump. That means the preponderance of the elites had decided that this guy had gone nuts and they couldn't trust him, uh, and they feared this kind of coup. Well, that video, because it targeted Christian nationalism, because it exposed the, you know, how corporate America's role in this, and, th- and I should say the Association of American manufacturers loved Trump right up until those days they got everything they wanted in terms of deregulation and tax cuts uh YouTube took that video down
0: um and gave me a warning official warning and, and it was selectively you not the big media that's also- yeah well what
2: happened is they said because we had a clip of Trump speaking to the crowd just before they went to Capitol Hill we were promoting the idea that the election was stolen and promoting disinformation now it was obvious in the video we were denouncing
0: trump and not just or, trump. just to be clear the big media could run the same video they all then, did
2: that same yeah. clip had been on every single mainstream media on youtube so then i i as an experiment i took out the trump clip and I added more because I, I knew more about the story of the role of Christian nationalism in the lead-up to January six, and I published that story. I also asked, raised the issue in the first and second story, uh, why, what was Mitch McConnell's role in this? Because nobody wants to talk about that. The head of the uh, the three guys that are oversee the capitol hill police are the sergeant of arms of the senate the sergeant of arms of the house and for some reason the congressional architect but the guy who really runs is senior is the sergeant of arms of the senate who does he report to the majority leader mitch mcconnell and the the chief of police of the capitol hill police was actually quoted as saying on the morning of the sixth, he went to the Sergeant of Arms of the Senate and asked for the National Guard to be called in then. And according to the chief of police, the Sergeant of Arms said to him, well, I'll have to go ask my boss, Mitch McConnell. And I never heard from him again, says the chief of police. Well, in my report, Christian nationalism, focusing on Mitch McConnell's role and the lead up. So because I took out the Trump piece, they didn't take the piece down. What, then I tried to buy an ad to promote the piece. Not they, they, I got a a letter from YouTube and then from Google saying, this piece spreads disinformation. You are now banned from advertising on all Google platforms forever. You, Paul (laughs) J, me personally so then I interview Mikey Weinstein I do a piece about Christian nationalism I don't even talk about Trump's role it's just about Christian nationalism in the military and the role in the lead up to the sixth they take that piece down I get a second strike now I'm one strike away from the channel being closed down the only reason I didn't get closed down I know Matt Taibbi and Matt wrote a piece about this and contacted YouTube and they knew he was going to have a piece exposing all this and so they actually did an apology they said they made a mistake and they took away my lifetime ban and put up a couple of the back the stories but it hadn't been for Matt they would have closed the channel now so we cannot leave deciding what's legitimate information and misinformation up to big Tech they cannot have the right uh, you know I mean there's these things should be publicly owned anyway if there's going to be something like a YouTube it should be publicly owned there's just no way a private corporation and then even if it's publicly owned there has to be a process within which there needs to be real democratic public participation into what information is there and even there I, I it shouldn't be about like banning stuff it should be about properly financing independent news and investigative journalism so you can actually persuade people and 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 just to add one thing I, i i do think this dominion um voting machine lawsuit against fox maybe that's a good model maybe we need to create a fund for class action suits against broadcasters that publish bullshit, and let it be fought out in a courtroom with evidence where you can actually prove they're knowingly publishing lies because how much of this uh, you know war after war is based on out- mainstream media uh promoting outright propagandistic lies to support the war maybe we should have an ability to have class action lawsuits against this I mean obviously the real solution is real democratization real public ownership of the media diversified media uh which means we have to find ways to gain more political power
1: it's you know it's
2: not just coming up with some ideal scheme in our heads
0: Freddie go ahead
1: yeah I I think we're in a very weird time in terms of the balance of power between independent media and corporate media in a certain obvious sense right um it's never been easier to spread your message as an independent purveyor of the news or opinion Right, the the technological tools have never been uh, more accessible or more widespread. My father was um, he wasn't I mean he was an avid fan of the Village Voice, but also of these little all weeklies, you know, printed newspapers from different cities across the country. And um, when we were growing up, when I was growing up in Connecticut in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties um, in order to get his hands on a bunch of these all weeklies, um, he had to just have friends in those cities, just send him them in the mail every, every week or every month or whatever it was, right? In other words, like, like there, there, there was just no distribution system for the, for the village voice, you could get it delivered, whatever, but for most of these little papers, if you wanted to get one and you didn't live in that town, you had to have someone send one to you, right? Some of them had subscriptions, some of them didn't. Um, Now, obviously, everything's online. It's incredibly cheap and easy to sort of set something up. Um, And you know, when I first started using the Internet seriously, you had to pay money for photo hosting. Like you had to put down real money just to put some photos online, and now you can get it unlimited whatever. Um, And at the same time, we have sort of this a series of very real and major challenges to establishment or mainstream media. There's not a single uh, show on CNN that still gets more than a million viewers regularly. Um, There's been a a terrible collapse in the number of uh, local newspapers across the United States in the last 10 years. The the total number of people... um, uh employed in uh newspapers was cut in half between uh, 2008 and 2018 so you'd think that the sort of balance of power has shifted decidedly into independent media and in some ways it has but um in a in a certain sense it's bad for everyone i think um a fundamental problem we face is that Actual news, like news gathering process, has never been a big money maker, right? So when the New York Times sends uh, a small team of journalists to Syria, and they're there for three months. All right, and they have to pay for their plane tickets, they have to pay for their food and their and their lodging, they have to pay for security, they have to pay for translation, they have to pay money to grease the wheels with the local authorities, etc. Um, that all costs a lot of money, and the number of people who read the stories from Syria that come out of that is quite low compared to other things. Just like hard news, unless it's about very topical stuff, hard news just doesn't do big numbers, right? And so what's always kept the news, the sort of the newsmaking industry afloat is bundling, right? So your newspaper had the hard news up front, but it also had the personals, so the classifieds, the demise of which was a horrible financial blow for local newspapers the, the the classified ads which you don't need anymore cuz you have the internet um they had the opinion section which is much cheaper to produce the news right like again like a news story can, could require you to send reporters into the field for months at high expense whereas you know an opinion piece takes one person just thinking and writing for a few days um you had the recipes you had the uh, the comics uh, like you know Garfield etc you had the um the uh crossword. Um, one of the things that the uh, the internet has done is that it has broken the bundle up where if you want a crossword, there's just an unlimited number of free crosswords that you can do online. you can just you, you, you are you you will you will never run out of crosswords to do for free online. If you want comics or cartoons there's an unlimited number of free cartoons you can read online. If you want opinion like the kind that I produce, You can look up a million newsletters and websites and blogs and whatever, and get all that opinion. Um, The problem is, right, then how does the news get subsidized? And I think that this is a really deep question and a really powerful one because that old model, uh, you know, (laughs) I am thankful for my success creating a newsletter, but I don't have the skills or the funding or the wherewithal to go and investigate What's the story with the drug war in Mexico right now, and the cartels, etc.? Right, and so um, so you have that problem there, and then you have the problem that Paul just talked about, which is that um, as while we have the sort of accessibility of all of these tools, they're ruled from the top down by a financial elite who can do whatever they want because they're privately held tools, right? So we've seen with Twitter so recently. Elon Musk was upset with the company Substack and so he throttled the reach of Substack newsletters on Twitter and he owns the company so he can do whatever he wants, right? YouTube can arbitrarily decide who can run a clip of Trump and who can't, right? And ultimately, they're they're not a public agency, they're a private company, so they can do whatever they want. And so that's the other half of this, which is that, yes, we have all these incredible uh, sort of Digital tools for distribution, but at, at the end of all of these digital tools, always there is some corporate bureaucrat who has the ability to pull the plug, dictate standards, you know, twist the algorithm, do whatever they want. And so, in a certain sense, it is, you know, um, it's never been easier to reach an audience, but the state of actual news gathering is very, very fraught and your ability to disseminate your message to your audience is always at the whim of a corporation.
2: Well, let me just add a couple of things.
0: Um, I would also like you to Paul, to say at least two sentences about how do you look at real news uh, having founded you it and some kind of that kind of experiment. How easy or difficult it is to do that.
2: well, the, the well I don't you know real news I am now at the analysis.news I'm not working at real news anymore for a couple mm-hmm. of two years mm-hmm. uh well it, it kind of goes to what I was about to say which is in spite of um what's that joke about everybody has the right to walk in the front door of the Ritz Hotel and
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, not everybody can afford the room yeah we can all get to YouTube but who's actually dominating YouTube is all the mainstream media companies uh you know you know what's one of the most visited sites and in the world you know CNN's and New York Times is one of the main sources of online news um so while we have you know anybody can start a YouTube channel but can you actually break through to a large audience and that's where YouTube's algorithms can really get to choose the winners and the losers um when when uh, Julian Assange was arrested uh, he in his handcuffed hands he was holding my book uh, it was, it was a, a book based on interviews i did with gore vidal called the history of the national security state mm-hmm. um so the next day dan ellsberg said to my wife he said you be careful you're really on their radar now mm-hmm. and the same thing happened i was in baltimore during the freddie gray uprising and we did a lot of coverage uh, giving a real class interpretation in fact our building was the sort of headquarters for a lot of the organizing that was going on uh, am- amongst the protesters so I was really on the radar then too because the local fusion center where the NSA and the FBI and the lo- state police and probably the CIA all work out of this Fusion Center with the local police department well they were all infiltrating watching our building uh, um and then that this reporting I did on January 6th um clearly an algorithm kicked in that said okay this guy's already been flagged and if you look at our numbers on YouTube they greatly drop after they start taking down our stories um Matt Taibbi's been doing this these stories on Twitter some of which has shown how the FBI algorithms talk to the Twitter algorithms and that's got to be the same case on YouTube so here's a practical suggestion: the progressives that are on the Hill or even at state levels if they can do it have a hearing where you force youtube to reveal the algorithms that and whether or not they're talking to the fbi and and try to actually out the way the the state agencies are creating agendas for social media that would be a useful service because there's simply no question it's happening anyway just back to your your point about the real news uh i mean i'm sure there were things we could have done better and same thing what i'm doing now with the analysis dot news um but it's very hard to break through to a mass audience almost impossible uh, unless you've got enormous amounts of money to promote and and buy advertising Um, and even then you know like in terms of mainstream tv media it doesn't even matter how much clout you might have money wise often they're, you, they're not going to let you on anyway I mean I think I'm an interesting talker maybe other people don't but a lot of people seem to I never get invited on anything you know, nothing there's not a, you know occasionally occasionally I used to get invited on RT and then I said to RT I said fine but I'm not going on RT without crit- critiquing Russia which I did so I never got invited back on RT again same thing if you if you talk in real terms about what's going on in the world you don't get on mainstream tv and i'll give you an example of something which which is nuts i interviewed senator bob graham who was the chair of the senate intelligence committee co-chair of the joint congressional investigation into 9 11. he told me on camera that Bush and Cheney deliberately disorganized the American intelligence agencies, and two, didn't just uh, do that. They actually actively facilitated the 9-11 attacks in a few few ways, Uh, including that famous memo, Bin Laden plans to attack America. Graham told me that the normal protocol after a presidential briefing is called a principal's briefing that goes out in the next day or two. Heads of agencies, secretaries of departments, under secretaries. So if there's anything in the presidential briefing um, that requires uh, action for national security reasons, it's in the next principal's briefing. Well, Graham tells me in the next principal's briefing, that memo bin laden plans to attack america was omitted and graham says this was part of actively facilitating okay this so i i i emailed every major news organization in the country i said it doesn't i know it makes no difference whether graham's right or wrong it's just he's a serious guy and the fact he said this is news and i will give you this video clip for free all you gotta do is credit me with doing the interview not one news source not a single one including people I actually knew personally not a single one followed up and asked me so you know how do you you, there's certain lines you must stay within to break through whether it's mainstream media or on social media and if it makes no difference whether you're fact-based you could go outside the lines of the official narrative Um, it's very hard so what is the solution the solution is we have to really find ways that alternative media you know help cooperates more create something bigger with more clout Bernie Sanders campaign shows you can raise a ton of money online you know it isn't a hopeless situation uh but we have to find ways to create some clout and do get people elected and then once they are elected they got to use that to expose this th- these kinds of issues like imagine having a guy like i phoned a guy I'll, I'll, I'll end quickly he ran world affairs for one of the coverage for one of the major newspaper chains so and i knew him and i said bob Graham, serious guy right oh yeah intelligence insider oh yeah head of the senate intelligence committee well here's what he just told me and I told him and he says holy shit I said I got it on video you can have it Christ and I knew this guy and he you know I've got you know I've got a mainstream uh News Network background my documentaries have been on all the major networks A&Es and BBCs and you name it my television show was a debate show for 10 years on CBC I was the exec producer so i'm not like coming from nowhere i've got some mainstream credibility zero they wouldn't touch the story even there's so much credibility to it so we have to build something with our own resources and if there's plenty of money amongst us to do this if we can break out of this kind of all of us competing with
0: each other uh, Freddie, i give you the final words and if you can also tell a little bit about your experience with the subscription-driven sort of uh, media—how in- independent you can be—and do you feel like making a broader impact at all, if anything?
1: Well, it's interesting. I I am um, frequently brought to things like this. I'm often sort of invited to be a voice of sort of independent media. Um, uh, on the other hand, my last book came out from uh, Macmillan. My new book is coming out from Slammed and Schuster, and I've been in the New York times and and the LA times and the Washington post and the guardian and, uh, Harper's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, look, it is, I'm very lucky to be successful making the newsletter that I do. Um, a really good post will get like 120,000 views. Typically I've had a couple of posts that have been sort of just by luck have sort of gotten to like 200 or 250,000. Um, I, after having, I mean, I've been blogging for 15 years, and I have long since given up on understanding the gods of what gets read and what doesn't. I mean, I I, I cannot tell you how many times I have labored over a piece for days and days, spent hours and hours on it, researched deeply, cared very much about it, thought that it was a piece that had a real chance to, to do something, and it just goes nowhere, Right. And then I will dash something off in an afternoon that doesn't mean that much to me. And it will be one of my biggest pieces. Um, certainly, there is a, um, uh, a trade off to be had between the sort of the freedom of doing my own thing and the broader audiences of the other uh, sort of doing mainstream stuff. Um, I frequently have to sort of let young writers down and let them know how poorly mainstream places pay. I mean, what I very often will hear from young writers is some version of, well, I'm sweating it out now, not making a lot of money blogging or working for sort of you know, low prestige sites, but someday I'll make it to the New York Times or I'll make it to New York Magazine or I'll make it to Harper's and then I'll make real money. And I have to tell them, like places don't really pay as well as you think they do right like like it's, it's really how you know, much how much does
0: the New York Times pay for a column.
1: Um, so the the uh, the the online only column that I put out in 2022. I think I put out a piece about um, uh, the American socialist movement for the New York Times. Um, I, it was a uh, you know, 1800 words, 2,000 words. I got seven hundred and fifty dollars for it, right? Um, print stuff, when I was in the, when I was in the print magazine, uh, I got four thousand dollars for three thousand words. Um, but that was a long, long process with a lot of sort of things like that, which is certainly not bad money. But if you're going to do it as a freelancer, you've got to be churning it out all the time, right? So one of the things for me right now is um, if I am thinking about doing, okay, I want to get a bigger audience. I'm going to write for a mainstream publication. I have to sort of do the math in my head, even if I, you know, am, am committed to doing that. Where on a per-word basis, writing for my newsletter makes me much, much more money. It makes me much more money than writing for the New York Times or for whoever, you know. um And so, but at the same time, um, my newsletter audience is largely a self-contained one. I have about forty thousand people on my mailing list. The average post gets about 40 or 50,000 views. Like I said, occasionally they go to a hundred and maybe three or four in the history, in the three year history or whatever of my newsletter, they've gone to like 200, 250, Um, but it's usually the same people. So it's sort of like a hermetic environment where I'm getting paid well to be a writer, which is the only thing I ever wanted but I'm not really influencing the broader conversation. And then every once in a while, a post will go big. But like I said, I've given up on figuring out why. Um, yeah. And the thing is, is my ability to publish in various places, mainstream places, um, is really not, has very little to do with the quality of my recent work and has everything to do sort of with, Um, who's cool with who, you know, what person who likes me recently became an editor somewhere, who owes me a favor, you know, who doesn't like me, even though this piece is perfect for them, right? Like there's just a lot of high school stuff, unfortunately, that really deeply influences the free market, the sort of the, the freelance market, um, for writing. So, um, I certainly haven't found the, the sort of the, the right sort of lane um I think in a bigger picture sense um I don't know it's a very real concern to me that most cities don't seem to be able to sustain a local newspaper anymore I mean that you know there were there were fundamental jobs being performed it's like the Cincinnati Inquirer which did a pioneering story about um how the Dole Corporation was committing crimes and uh and and fomenting violence in Central America I think the the Cincinnati is down to six pages a day is the how the length of the paper
2: can I can I add just one final sentence I'll make it really short yeah Um, I think what people watching this should do is use people like us on this panel other sources of analysis and news to help inform you but we're not ever in this stage of human history is this media going to become influential on a mass scale it ain't happening so what needs to be done is take and get what you can from us and then get involved in organizations that Mm. are knocking on people's doors bypass the bloody media go talk directly to people and persuade and discuss and listen there's organizations doing this all across the country and and you know we aren't going to break through let's be realistic it ain't happening in this stage of capitalism they know how to keep us in the margins but they can't stop people from knocking on doors and talking to each other so use us to go do that
0: Absolutely. Um... I guess if enough of us uh, start doing that, and who knows, perhaps on the ground there is uh, more ground swelling and maybe capitalism, if not is toppled, it changed it it is forced to change character to at least make it somewhat of a command economy from this very sort of free range, um, you know, casino capitalism that you say. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, thanks, Freddie and Paul, for your time. It was wonderful being with you. Thanks for having me. Bye.